You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Racism, slavery, eugenics, patriarchy, and people wearing gears on a top hat for no reason. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! Buckingham Palace, the guard was changing. The royal family, as was their habit, were summering in Scotland. But the elite brigade of guards carried out the daily ritual in the Queen's absence. The palace troops proudly marched in the very latest and most efficient British military gear, dun-colored Crimean battle garb, scientifically splattered to deceive the enemy eye. The clever fabric had utterly confused the Russians by all accounts. Behind the marchers, a team of artillery horses towed a large military calliope, its merry piping and rousing drones sounding strangely forlorn and eerie in the still, foul air. Mallory had been waiting for Fraser to reach a conclusion. At last he could wait no longer. Do you believe I met Ada Byron, Mr. Fraser? Fraser cleared his throat and spat discreetly. Yes, sir, I do. I don't much like the matter, but I don't see much to marvel at in it. You don't? No, sir. I believe I see the root of it, clear enough. It is gambling trouble. Lady Ada has a modus. A modus? What is that? It is a legend in sporting circles, Dr. Mallory. A modus is a gambling system. A secret trick of mathematical enginery to defeat the odds makers. Every thieving clacker wants a modus, sir. It is their philosopher's stone, a way to conjure gold from empty air. Can that be done? Is such an analysis possible? If it is possible, sir, perhaps Lady Ada Byron could do it. The friend of Babbage, Mallory said. Yes, I can believe it. Indeed I can. Well, perhaps she has a modus, perhaps she only thinks she does, Fraser says. I'm no mathematician, but I know there's never been any betting system that worked worth a damn. In any case, she's blundered into something nasty again. Fraser grunted in disgust. She's pursued that clacker's phantom for years now and rubbed shoulders with very ugly company. Sharpers, low clackers, loan makers, and worse. She's amassed gambling debts, to the point of open scandal. Absently, Mallory hooked his thumbs within his money belt. Well, if Ada's truly found a modus, she won't have debts much longer. Fraser offered Mallory a look of pity for such naivete. A true modus would destroy the institutions of the turf. It would wreck the livelihood of all your sporting gents. Ever seen a track crowd mill up around a Welsher? That's the sort of stir a modus would bring. Your Ada may be a great blue stocking, but she hasn't any more common sense than a housefly. She's a great savant, Mr. Fraser, a great genius. I have read her papers and the superb mathematics. Lady Ada Byron, Queen of Engines, Fraser said in an utterly leaden tone that had more weariness than contempt. A strong-minded woman, much like her mother, eh? Wears green spectacles and writes learned books. She wants to upset the universe and play at dice with the hemispheres. Women never know when to stop, Mallory smiled. Are you a married man, Mr. Fraser? Not I, Fraser said. Nor I, not yet. And Lady Ada never married. She was a bride of science. Every woman needs a man to hold her reins, Fraser said. It's God's plan for the relations of men and women. Mallory scowled. Fraser saw his look and thought the matter over again. It's evolution's adaptation for the human species, he amended. Mallory nodded slowly. Good evening. Welcome once again to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. And we are joined once again with our fr by our friend uh, Costa Kutsudis. Hello. Yes, uh, once again, um, we were going to actually be be looking at uh, another William Gibson, or he co-authored the book, The Difference Engine, uh, by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. Uh, we'll be right back 
after a word from our sponsor. It's time to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. The stunning HyperX Quadcast S features dynamic, customizable RGB lighting, a convenient tap-to-mute sensor, and four selectable polar patterns, so we can broadcast crystal clear audio, whether you're gaming, streaming, podcasting, or impressing your remote colleagues and classmates. So what are you waiting for? Join the Quad Squad and tap in today with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. Yes, so um, today we're going to be looking at The Difference Engine, which is a, a significant book. Uh, we hadn't actually, I, I had not intended to do <laughs> uh, two William Gibson books uh, so close together. Uh, and in fact, I was, uh, I was actually ignorant enough not to realize that uh, Gibson was the co-author of this book. Um, I knew Bruce Sterling had written it. I didn't realize that uh, it was co-written by, with Gibson and Sterling. Um, and it is, of course, significant because, as I said, this season we're kind of charting the arc of steampunk. And this is kind of, uh, you know, we're going to get into it in future episodes as well, but this is pretty much arguably ground zero for steampunk. Certainly this is where the term originated. There are older books that could be called steampunk, uh, but this is definitely the book that people started calling steampunk. That's right, Costa, right? Like this is people start critics started calling it steampunk, right? So, from what I've been able to under, to actually tell in the 1980s, uh cyberpunk author uh KW Jeter actually kind of sort of used the term steampunk to describe historical anachronistic works that would be considered like speculative past or speculative near fiction, but for the most part the concept of like the the Victorian inspired alternative history with uh, where the industrial revolution happened pretty much almost a generation and a half early. Yeah. Like the difference engine set that standard and then it got completely thrown out the window by everybody else, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I, I assume. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Like um, if, uh, Phil just, yeah. Did you uh, have any thoughts on steampunk uh, Philip? Oh, uh, I mean, we've discussed the, the basic, uh, genre. I do like the aesthetics. I know that that's it, it's overdone these days, and uh, a lot of it um, does ignore the um, uh, political angle, uh, especially mm -hmm. you know, which this book actually handles very well. This book is primarily about um, um, right. how the technology would shape uh, the political landscape and culture. It's basically right. a political thriller, if you th yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it's none of very... the technology in this is impossible per se. Uh, I mean, right. it happened earlier in history, but like uh, towards the end, like at the end, when we get a glimpse into the into the present, um, uh, where you know, it's but sort of alt, like yeah, an uh, alt but, timeline version of our present uh, yeah, exactly. coming out of this. This yeah, yeah. Exactly. But for most of the book, it's just uh, technology happening earlier and what that would uh, do to the culture. Right. The main uh, significant here is significance here is the um, uh, the it, interestingly, my understanding is this isn't actually describing a difference engine. The difference engine is the old uh, the old timey term for a computer uh, that I believe Charles Babbage used. Yeah. Um, and this is this is apparently more more correctly described as an analytical engine. It's basically a building size series of cogs and calculators. Um, which had, I believe, been proposed by Babbage, but was never built in his lifetime, of course. And um, I, I guess it was never actually built. It was just sort of foreseeing a computer, but actual co computers didn't get built until sometime later. But the the difference engine was, you know, the the the, the forerunner of a modern computer, I believe. Um, but it was it was a bit. It was really just a very sophisticated clockwork mechanism i guess it wasn't really powered by steam or electricity or anything i was gonna say uh it is ironic that if you know when you read the difference engine how little of this steampunk book actually involves steam power because a lot of it is essentially powered by coal right right steam steam and clockwork ironically enough is is sort of like on the side like there's the steam powered car they mentioned the 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 napoleon the sort of the napoleonic french computers are more steam powered, but like the English, uh, analytical engines and the, you know, they're, 
They're powered by like furnaces. Yeah, they they. they I, I, in fact, I think they said uh, the the Grand Napoleon, which is the French equivalent yeah. of the. I, I think they mentioned that was actually powered by compressed air. Although maybe that's part of the mechanism, not the thing that makes it go. But yeah, it's it's all based on like it. It really is technology that was achievable if you'd hit the gas on technological advancement sometime in the 1820s or 1830s. Uh, which is basically what this mm-hmm. this book is presupposing, um, and uh, it like the 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 big point of divergence historically is that um, Lord Byron became prime minister apparently, uh, sort of uh, with his wife as a Svengali uh, pushing him into the role, um, and um, she uh, uh, yeah because he was a moron before that. <laughs> <laughs> Like it, it's yeah that it's it's really interesting how he deals with because we we've done ep- we've done a couple episodes especially the one uh, Frankenstein Unbound where we talked about uh, Shelley and Byron and what was it we just sort of decided Philip in that one about Byron and 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 Shelley and their sort of political viewpoints and how how does it differentiate from this one? Uh, well, uh, Shelley I believe was an anarchist or at least he. he- uh, had pro-anarchist views in a lot of um, cases. He wrote a, a pro-anarchist um, a poem called uh, um, Mask of Anarchy, I believe. Um, wow, that's given me flashbacks and, to graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, in this, he's actually, uh, it, it, in an aside, it mentions that he's been um, uh, assumed assassinated, though probably just um, uh, sent away. Um, he's sort of what got saved by Byron, who was his friend in real life. But here they obviously had a falling out, and um, but Byron still managed to save his life while uh, making sure he had no influence anymore. But yeah, they, it, they, they, they were uh, uh, on opposing sides of of issues in this book, apparently. Yeah, that is really interesting to me, and that just from what I know about Shelley and Byron, that really. That 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 clicks like that feels right. Um, uh, that that's the kind of thing where you know people they, they seem like the kind of people who if they'd gotten like really powerful they'd have like a huge political divergence. And I was gonna say as Costa was saying like Byron was not I don't think he was well I, I don't know I mean he fought in the Greek Civil War and died actually in the Greek uh, the the Greek the Greek War. So um, but he, he yeah go ahead sorry he didn't you know more really I do. <laughs> fight much. He, so he showed up, and he had money, and he really admired the cause, and he gave a lot of money and tried to organize, like, raids and battles, but the, the sort of, like, the political situation at the time among the sort of, like, the quote-unquote, the, the rebels, the Filikieteria, the, the Friendly Brotherhood, and various other sort of, like, um, groups made it difficult to really organize anything. He, he got sick and died in Greece. He got sick. He got, like, pneumonia. Oh, right. Okay, yes. Although, when so I was... A, yeah, so he didn't die fighting. Although, he yeah. is considered a hero there. When I was a kid, we lived there for a while, and I distinctly remember a Byron impersonator coming to school. Which, like, <laughs> who does that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they have founding father impersonators, I guess he was... A, did Did Greece, like, win independence in that war? Was it, yes, I don't that, know was the, that, was the, that was the war of independence against the Ottoman Empire. Byron did help popularize and bring more public attention to the Greek revolution because it was considered sort of like a weird splinter point. Um, a lot of nations sympathized with Greece because it was a Christian nation in the thralls of like the evil sort of Muslim uh-huh. empire. But at the same time, uh, Turkey was the gateway to the East. You really didn't want to disturb that. So it created like a complex sort of like sociopolitical situation that even after the revolution continued to be incredibly sort of like fraught with danger. Hmm. Well, good thing we're past that now. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Everything's uh, fine now. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah. So, well, that was the thing. So then this book posits that Byron uh, survived uh, one way or another. Um, the, the the forking point actually seems to be uh, his wife, um, uh, Anne. Uh, uh, I forget her last name, her, her maiden name. But uh, his wife and the, the mother of uh, Ada Byron aka Ada Lovelace um yeah she she seems to have been the thing that kind of pushed him into a political and to get to accomplish her grand dreams like there's a coda to this very near the end that suggests that you know he was just 
you know, a, uh, he was just a drunken buffoon, as you say, and and she pushed him to. Uh, she she was the one with all the political and scientific ideas, which she passed on to her daughter. And uh, yeah, like he, they mentioned that you know Byron wasn't necessarily eager to to hang the Luddites and and exile Shelley, but she pushed him to do it, or even forged his signature to do it. And uh, so that became the the world at, where um, uh, science was given sort of a huge shove forward and i find that really interesting because like when we talk about victorian uh like when we say victorian we kind of mean prudish stuffy you know backwards looking um a very uptight um but there was an element of course in the 19th century um that was very high on science the i effing love science squad as it were and this sort of posits that that group became the prime mover and it was an advancement in some ways for instance they you know the old guard the in this book uh wellington lord uh, duke wellington and and the tories uh were actually they had to actually be overthrown by byron's group which is called the industrial radicals the rads uh, yeah the rads um and uh, they who they they took power and and again they sort of they made the the main motivation science and the advancement of human knowledge and technology um and um it is so that that's that that's sort of the prime mover for all this stuff that happens. So then we get uh, steam-powered gurneys, which seem to be automobiles. Is that is that how you read that the, the steam gurneys? Yeah, that's how I did initially. Like the 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 car the cars that are they're racing at the beginning. Like that's a that's a steam-powered car, right? Those are automobiles mm-hmm. with a, some kind of steam-powered engine. Um, I will say too an interesting thing. Like to go back just a second to the idea of like the major divergence point. It wasn't. To me, it wasn't just necessarily that the the industrial radicalists, you know, like the rads promoted science solely, but that they also somehow allowed for a level of secular humanism to also highly influence British society because, you know, Darwin is a common household name and it seems as if sort of ideas or public speech regarding beliefs in, in what would have been the Church of England normally have kind of become like passe and old fashioned. Yeah, that's interesting and and again it's like i i I get the feeling that that movement definitely existed in our world in the victorian era like oh it totally did there were absolutely people and like there were people who you know uh like everything from like diet to education to um like the was often embraced by you know oh let's do it the scientific way the 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 post-enlightenment way now that we're we're, we're all men of, of, of intelligence. But, I, but yeah, as you say, I mean, the church and the nobility were still big factors in the 19th century, and, and they, they don't seem to be as big a factor here. Um, it, it, which is interesting because they don't sort of talk about them being heavily shoved aside either. It's They do say about, like, the, nobi- the nobles were kind of pushed into the background, but not done away with. In no, this you wouldn't they get have away a, with the peerage. Because there's still social class, but you know now anybody can yeah. become a peer. You can get voted into being a no, being nobility and having a seat in the house, uh, like they call it, like the house of whatever, right? And they even mention yeah. uh, like a somebody who at the time this would have been in our our timeline absolutely crazy, like a, a Jewish member of the House of Lords. Right. Yeah. It's it seems to be what. Well, yeah. It was. It's they call it merit lordship. In yeah. this, Which is uh, so just and it was apparently this radical suggestion, but. It ended up they 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 pushed it through and it happened anyway. Um, so there's definitely yeah like there, it's definitely sort of the old world. It it, it it's sort of they halfway did the French Revolution, uh, <laughs> it, which was a bourgeois revolution, but it got you know the um, it got a lot of the uh, the church and the the old uh, the old uh, monarchical system, the old feudal system, kind of got swept away. Uh, to a degree that I'd argue it wasn't in the 19th century in England. Yeah. Um, uh, there's also a uh, rise of unions. Uh, oh, so yeah. Or the equivalent. Uh, particularly the uh, the coal miners union, union I believe, uh, in this book, mm-hmm. which helped the Rads come to power. Apparently, uh, uh, allegedly assassinated Lord Byron. <laughs> uh, Is this not the, Lord uh, Byron. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, Wellington. The Duke of Wellington. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Is yeah, that, that's right. Is that it? Go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say that's right. Like the there's like the the diggers unions, the coal miners unions, uh, like all those like proto pseudo industrial unions. They do get mentioned, and they're in the backgrounds as like striking and protesting, and they mention that they have significant power. I was just rereading this to get ready, 
And I remember, I was like, oh, that's right. This book basically posits that the Rads basically solved the Irish famine and essentially never caused the splitting of Ireland. It, there's a distinction here because, and it does get into uh, all that kind of aspect, including, you know, socialism and communism. Um, one of the things we learn, like, well, first of all, the, the, the initial uh, protagonist is uh, Sybil Gerard. Um, she's sort of the, st- she's the protagonist for uh, a major chapter or so. And then we, we go with uh, uh, Edward Mallory as the protagonist for most oh. of the book. Um, uh, but sorry, I just wanted to before you get too far. Sybil Gerard is actually I, I found out not from this book originally. No, she's not. Uh, she's, she's the she's the main character from Benjamin Disraeli's novel Civil or the Two Nations from 1845. And Disraeli himself is in this book yeah, too. Exactly. So. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Like there's a like some fictional characters mixing in with real people and. Uh, original characters it's sort of like a i don't know a league of extraordinary gentlemen situation in, in that way which in itself is very steampunky so that that actually ties into what i was just saying uh ned ludd uh the the luddites who of course were a real movement that mm-hmm. existed in our world as well uh they 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 credit their uh existence to a guy named ned ludd who was fictional uh in this book they kind of imply that he was real so yeah. that's another example of that but i'm not 100% sure on that sorry the implication i got is that in this book ned ludd is a real person in the same way that um and this is sort of skipping forward ahead in the same way that captain swing in this book is a real person when right. historically he that he wasn't yeah yeah Le- ned ludd was it, from what i understand they was sort of maybe not deliberately, but he was invented by the Luddite movement to sort of justify a lot of what they were doing. He was kind of the, the, the new Robin Hood. And in fact, he was even credited as uh, living in Nottingham, which is where the, the, the thing got started from. But that was, um, that was a movement in the beginning of the 19th century um, that was a reaction to the uh, textile mills that were coming in. And it was the very early example of automation putting everyone out of work. Um, so Luddites were sort of the radical labor um, movement that started smashing the mills in order to fight back in that regard. To this day, of course, we and this this is I love this because it feels like the the the, the rads <laughs> were in charge of this and it, or were the ones responsible for this, but they you know that kind of mindset at least um the fact that luddite means anti-technology and the luddites were not against technology they just it they were a labor they were concerned with labor they did not want their jobs to be taken away by the technology and it got framed by the upper classes like well they just hate technology they hate and fear that which is different but they had very solid reasons for doing that it was it was a it was a labor movement basically which this book acknowledges well i I appreciate that it like it it gets it right on that regard um and and the the yeah so in this world the luddites were i mean they they were suppressed in our world too but they were really suppressed in this world so we've got the unions and the the, you know they back the uh the the rads uh and they're they're a key part of the world but the actual sort of the more socialist side of the labor movement is has been repressed through the Luddites. We do learn that in the, in the U S Marx is alive in New York city, baby. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah. U S is, is very fractured in this world because the UK has more power and uh, has been kind of dividing the U S so that it never like united properly. And the Confederacy is already split off. There's a Republic of Texas, which there was in our world as well, but the Republic of Texas is kind of, resisting the others there's a republic of california and uh manhattan is a is a commune run by karl marx in this world i laugh every time i reread this book and that comes up it's great uh it's interesting because a lot of um uh people who fled england um seem to have uh wound up in uh in the south in the u.s and sort of mixing in with local culture there's a there's a character who seemed who was um an an ex-marquee who was raised in the South, and uh, so he's um, um, sort of a, a bizarre mix of uh, leftist and um, pro-slavery ideas. Like he has, yeah. he has a black slave who he says uh, the whole community owns this slave. Yeah, oh, that's right. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, this this book in general, it does sort of capture how all, there are all these like crazy political movements, and it's not just like. 
Gibson and Sterling going, oh, let's put our own politics into this. Like, it feels like the politics of the 19th century, in which some ways is incomprehensible to us. Like, as you say, there's an, like, this is supposed anarchist radical who owns a slave and is a confederate. And there's, like, um, there's there's a lot of weird ideas. Uh, the 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 check the segment I read at the beginning shows you how this uh, Mallory is is this um, you know he's this enlightened person and he's like a secular humanist and everything and he's what we'd think of as an advanced guy but he's still really sexist right yeah um, and he wants to he he pegs uh, he pegs um, the uh, the evolution if you swap out God, evolution for god then he's happy with the same kind of patriarchal bs that anyone else uh, wants to say um which and, which is uh, something that continues to this day with in, in some circles yeah it's funny how this like i don't know if that this was uh 92 or 93 this book was written i believe I think it was 90, 90 91 yeah. okay yeah, yeah, and and yet the concern, and I wouldn't say that was like a huge concern at the time. I mean, anyone who was looking could see it, but I feel like this whole thing of like new atheists and and uh, the problems with like people pushing back against religion but maintaining like that that's become a kind of a hot button topic nowadays. And I feel like thirty years ago it wasn't, so it's very prescient in that sense. Yeah, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Superhero stuff. You should know! Go deeper than you've gone before into your favorite comic book films, storylines, and characters. Superhero stuff you should know. Part of the HyperX Podcast Network. (laughs) Us. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks we do linguistic analysis. The Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Sarah, you I think your apartment is haunted. Check us out at the HyperX Podcast Network. What Mad Universe is part of the HyperX Podcast Network. HyperX is our sponsor and the maker of the acclaimed Quadcast and Quadcast S microphones. Quadcast USB mics look and sound amazing, and they're packed with features. With four selectable polar patterns, you'll get great sound no matter what you're recording. The included shock mount and pop filter mean that you won't have to shell out extra cash for a great setup. Then there's the eye-catching LED indicator and tap-to-mute sensor, so you can tap in and tap out to stop broadcast accidents. It's time for you to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast and Quadcast S. I think it was meant to more like be almost like Gibson and, and Sterling kind of playing with our idea of of uh, protagonist, right? Because Mallory is still, you know, like, yeah, he's presented to us, you know, as like a learned, educated man. He digs for dinosaurs. He works with his hands. He, you know, he wears like the same old clothes up until he earns like you know, some mo- get some money, but at the same time, he's still very much a, a representation of what the the book posits is like their ideal society, where where these sort of like upright middle to upper class men they run things because they know things, they are educated, and the the debates that they have, including this weird theory that he's that he believes in called uh, Mallory believes in called catastrophism. Yeah. Oh, this was a real thing. Well, um, I don't doubt. Yeah, it's uh, there was a debate among uh, followers of, of Darwin whether um, uh, evolution was just over a really long period and it was just a slow process, or if it was a bunch of disasters that happened that um, that shaped things. Uh, the the latter were um, had most of the scientific support at the time because they didn't know that the Earth was, or they didn't have proof yet that the Earth was really really old. Uh, say they thought the sun was just made of hydrogen, so it couldn't have possibly been burning for billions of years. Um, yeah, they talk about and, Mallory Mallory's beliefs on the age of the Earth several times. Yeah, you know. The, yeah, that was a thing. Um, and yeah, um, it's it's interesting because Mallory is like in by being a catastrophist, he's like right about a few things, but clearly wrong about other things. Like he he's a believer in the somewhat younger earth like i think he says three hundred thousand years rather than million billions yeah um but he or millions in the case of you know life on earth uh he he talks some uh, there's one or two other things that he mentions that are that are clearly wrong but he also has the idea of like yes there are there have been like he's essentially kind of 
poking around the idea that a comet wiped out the dinosaurs, which is correct, but he's viewing it through the lens of catastrophism, right? So he's kind of like, there's, there's two halves here, and he's got half of it, and he's fighting with the other half, and he doesn't see that they're part right, both sides are partly right and partly wrong, basically. Yeah, there, there is also a punctuated equilibrium, which is a more modern uh, a theory postulated by Stephen Jay Gould and others, that um, it is slow change over short period, over long periods, but then occasionally there's a disaster that shakes things up, that changes everything. So that's the Cambrian explosion and, of course, the comet that wiped out the dinosaurs and stuff. Right. But yeah, as you were saying, Costa, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's very much, he's, he's, he's the archetypal, ideal man of that particular era. And yet shockingly naive at the same time, as several other characters you know, point out. <laughs> he's basically like, uh, he's like Bear Grylls, right? Everybody thinks he's like, Oh, a dude of the wild, but he is not. <laughs> well, he's, I mean, like, he's portrayed as having lived fairly rough in the American... Like, he, he had to uh, arm himself to defend himself from uh, raids at one point, I believe. Oh Native my god, American that's right, guns. the whole bit about smuggling guns. Right. Yeah, yeah, he was a gunrunner. like, even, yeah. Yeah, and he's, he was, yeah, he's, so he did, yeah, but as you say, it's like, he he doesn't come off as a really... Uh, rough and tumble guy, but he did have some pretty, which again I think is fairly in keeping with the idea of if you were a ge geographer or a, an archaeologist or a paleontologist or someone who had to go out in the field, uh, you know, I think that that's more or less consistent. Um, and it's also worth noting this guy isn't born into wealth either. He um, he he actually uh, he's you know he does okay, but he's you know a, a fairly low level uh, guy. He's a he's a fairly poor scientist until he wins. Uh, gambling early yeah. on in the book and then he becomes a, a wealthy gentleman which again kind of reflects the way this society works even though this particular guy went through gambling but it's the idea of like the yeah they're, they're yes yeah, a, a pseudo meritocracy pseudo -meritocracy, but not really because it was gambling yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a there's a character at the beginning who uh i can't remember which character but he said he used to be a luddite but nowadays you know they've made it so you can if you play their game you can win Oh, that's uh, Mickey. That's uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Sam Houston's Mickey assistant. Radley. Yeah, Mi yeah. Mi God, what a <laughs> piece of trash. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying he's correct. I'm just saying, you know, that's that's sort of the view that, that characters seem to have. But um, oh, that um, that tends to set the tone for a lot because it, you know, we learn throughout the book too how many characters and background characters change allegiance as time goes on and they gain power or lose power, right? And how many how many lord you know people in the house of lords used to be like hardcore rads but are now st letting their sort of natural conservatism show how many of them used to be luddites but now recognizing that they can essentially get power by playing the game no longer are right. the true revolutionaries that they claim to be yeah and that's happened to the unions too like it's it's fairly explicit with the, although the unions are maybe starting to poke around radicalism we see that the sandhogs are on strike during the course of most of this book um but they but yeah they collaborated with the the people in power to get them in power back when they were radicals and this book is very it's a little cynical and it's very aware of the idea that some of the worst people are the ones the worst oppressors maybe not oppressors but the the people who who help the system keep chugging along and crushing people are the ones who started out determined to change things and they they make the system better and then by doing so they make it more efficient as a machine of <laughs> as a boot to stomp on people's faces essentially arguably the only two really like characters who would be like protagonists who don't end up coming across too too badly are oliphant and Fraser, and they're the secret police <laughs> yeah, well, and Sybil as well. I mean, she's and she's, Sybil, she's, yeah, yeah, and she's she's oddly taken. It's it's actually a very strange decision in my mind that she's in. She's sort of the protagonist for the first, you know, let's say fifth of the book, and then suddenly she vanishes. She literally leaves the country. Yeah, and but the then rest of the book, everything sort of then cycles around her actions. It's like the ripple effect. She is the unseen mm -hmm. center of this sort of like machine ironic metaphorically right. and she speaking. shows up at the end as well um, right in the conversation with uh ada byron she pops in again at the end um uh, it's interesting because uh gibson and sterling say uh, elsewhere that this the sort of the point of the book is that the narrator is a computer they even called him narratron 
Um, <laughs> and um, that's like, and that's why they there are segments that are like so random, odd. like in yeah, random, almost a montage of files and and uh, like articles and things being pulled from here and there and planted into the narrative. Um, I'm not quite sure I got that aspect of the book, but well, that's. Uh, uh, that's um, uh, sort of introduced in the last couple paragraphs where we we cut to sort of the present, uh, the 90s in um, um, this fictional world uh, where London is just a complete machine city and there's no actual people in it. And it seems that the um, computers are gaining sentience and that's who's writing the book. Anyway. I was going to say, so the way I understood it, and I'm kind of sort of like jumping to the all over so the way I understood it is that the book is essentially being compiled and narrated from the future by a sentient machine that eventually becomes sentient London and that it's roots and that it is actually rooted in the it, you know, like it's basically telling the story of its own creation because by Ada Byron's sort of like her modus cards are actually not a gambling thing right there. Um, I had to look it up. They, they are supposed to be Ada like she, the thing she lectures about at the end, it's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem, mm. which is a mathematical theory that proves probability, whatever that means. So basically, she essentially lays the groundwork through her own work for artificial intelligence, for true artificial intelligence, so impossibly early. Right? And, right. and, and so everything that happens in this story ultimately leads to this machine sit city and the computer is telling its own story of itself as it's coming online. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I, I read that. I, I it, that The final passage is kind of, it's very, um, it's very cryptic and very poetic, so it's hard to know exactly how literally to take it. Like, are human beings just not existence, not, not, in, not really existing, but they're, you know, uh, they're, they're, simulacrums created by the machine or is it is it some is that just sort of how he's describing the people who live in the city as being kind of hollowed out and not not being very happy uh, like it's it's hard to say exactly because yeah, we literally mix, only get a i feel like the end you get to see a lot more of uh, sterling's prose than gibson's prose hmm. because of uh, like i haven't read as much of his work as i had of, have of gibson's but sterling's work always has like a much more like um, flowing, very stream of consciousness, arguably magical quality to it, to the way he describes things and narrates things, right? It can either be like hyper simple or very, very sort of like eloquent, at least in my experience. So I feel like that part, this part at the end where we get the clips and excerpts that give us the sociopolitical background of a lot of the politics and then ultimately the blooming of this machine intelligence, I feel like that's more of, of Sterling's touch. Hmm. Yeah, that 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 makes sense, and I think it's also meant to be something that maybe we can't even really understand because it's a machine yeah. sentience, and that's that's part of the point as well. Um, but so that is that is very interesting, and yeah, the the book is is as you say, yeah, that 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 did come across the idea that the book is sort of being compiled via computer, and that it's it's uh, you know it's a it's a sentient computer telling its own story, as it were. Well, the other th okay, yeah. So the other thing about this one, um, about this, and it, like, he's also well. First of all, the the thing about the mo going back to the modus, that was the other thing. Um, of course, we just did, um, we just looked at uh, Neuromancer, and the modus is kind of the winter mute of this book, in a sense, right? It's there's this one big missing piece that will grant sentience to the. This, the 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 computers of the world, um, and in this case it's the modus, and the other one it was it was Wintermute or Neuromancer. It's yeah. unclear which is uh, sorry I've forgotten which one was the the one that had to be rescued and which was the one I guess Neuromancer was the one that had to be rescued. Neuromancer um, was rescued to help get to, and it was being guided by Wintermute. But yeah, like right. it it is kind of funny that the the modus these cards are supposedly so important, but they also we kind of lose track of them and it doesn't really matter about halfway through the book. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of. of almost forgot about them and realized because then we sort of move on to much bigger things and it's kind of played off almost like, well, this is a mystery that I guess will just never be touched on. And that in the skull of this dinosaur in the British museum will be hidden this great treasure forever. Yeah. But I think that, but I think the implication is that the modus is what 
eventually leads to the computer becoming sentient, right? Oh, yeah, because yeah. my understanding of Godel is actually that my understanding of Godel, I don't claim to know anything. <laughs> Godel is incredibly sophisticated mathematics. Uh, I understand um, this is actually something that uh, was apparently influenced uh, the matrix as well. Uh, it's the idea that a sufficiently complex system uh, starts to develop a sort of um, like a variables or un, I don't know what the phrase is, but un, uh, unprocessed data that destabilizes the system. So as it cycles, it, it kind of destabilizes the whole system more and more until the point where it has to sort of either reboot itself or it has to reintegrate that into the system. The system has to recalculate itself somehow. And I think uh, because we hear that the modus... Uh, was run on, if I understand this correctly, it was run on the Grand Napoleon, the French computer, the French difference engine. Yeah. And that, and it doesn't work the same way anymore, which is bad for them, but the implication seems to be that it's starting to think in that regard. And that I think that's what they're saying. This is that that crucial spark, because you, if, if you just have a machine that whirls and clicks and purrs, it doesn't think for itself. But if you destabilize, if you nudge it a little, it starts to maybe gain a bit of sentience. Does that make sense? That that does. And it sort of really lines up, you know, because here in this in this book, they, they have hackers or people who operate computers, but they're called clackers. Right. right. And and there's that implication that clackers are trying to quote unquote sabotage the the Grand Napoleon. And it's that's a thing that they're very sort of scared of and try and avoid in Britain with their engines. But yeah, like then there's the implication that the sabotage has done something to the Napoleon. So that it does not always give the same results, and and they don't really know what exactly to do moving forward. Right. Yeah. I. I. I, I like I say, I read that as like that's kind of the if not the sentience itself, that's kind of the process that will lead to the computer. Yeah, gaining it's a, a lot bit of, of self awareness. A lot of little background stuff that kind of converges, but kind of doesn't, because like to me, I, you know, I mentioned it before. This book is like a all like a historical drama, right? It's like a political thriller. So mm -hmm. there's no real singular tight narrative to it. It is, um, I hate to say like it's a vibe or it's an aesthetic, but it kind of <laughs> is. I, like, don't get me started. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, kind opposed, of, it... it's a realistic aesthetic or vibe of steampunk and all the ugliness sort of associated with it. I including the great stink. Which really happened in 1952. Yeah, but it's it's uh, worse in this world because it's combined with the increased pollution that they're putting out. So it just yeah. makes London unlivable for a time. Yeah. And that, of course, that leads to the gentry fleeing the city, which then leads to a minor revolution. Uh, because yeah. the only people left are the you know the the, the working class and the rabble and they uh, and they kind of rise. So we get a little bit of a proto Paris commune almost for for a moment. Or Brit Except maybe with that's... slave owners. Yeah. yeah. Well, that yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah, the the book is not very hopeful about uh, the idea of of the little guy kind of rising up because we see the people we see in this are like looters, they're opportunists. Uh, the Marquess is not a good guy. Um, now, to be fair, we're seeing all this from Mallory's point of view, and Mallory is definitely like the guy who would be is a shocked and appalled that you know he's late for tea because the society <laughs> is you know not running the way it should be running and. You know, so and, and he's you know he he's he gets really angry when they start uh, met talking you know luddite and and socialist and anarchist viewpoints, which seem you know solid enough to well at least uh, if you're a leftist reading this, you're like okay yeah I kind of agree with this guy, but the guy does turn out to be a bit of a jerk himself as well, uh, the Marquez. Um, I was gonna say it always seems to me that uh, in this book that a lot of this sort of like revolutionary like the king swing in them that this is a cover it is a cover to make money and and put themselves in power because they're like obsessed with getting the modus because they claim they want it to sort of help finance their revolution uh you know but at the same and then even after the revolution fails they still try and get it they still try and get that box of cards mm -hmm. right like I, it feels like the implication here is that you know these people have essentially that many of these people have been manipulated by the few under the guise of revolution. At least that's the right. read I, I got from it. And that, you know, but it's the, not, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, no, that the, then that of course, and of course it seems problematic to us because the gen, you know, the gentry ultimately solved this with quote unquote, good old English might, but like, that's the read that I got from it. Right. Like that they, 
they just want money and power and they're essentially hustling these, you know, the poor and under, you know, sort of like underrepresented to get it. We also see uh, from other political viewpoints, uh, similar, um, the leaders um, say uh, Sam Houston is a character in this, is the exiled uh, president of Texas. And uh, he has made off with all the all the uh, the nation's money, basically. Yeah. Um, like and he's saying he's using it to, you know, build up, you know, resources overseas. But he, like, keeps all these diamonds and his cane and stuff. And he's, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's very much about this, you know, there's like this level of hypocrisy. And everybody is hypocritical. Even, you know, as I mentioned, like, Fraser and all of fans. Sybil is probably the only character who is not hypocritical. So it's kind of ironic, I think, when we read it to see that she's, incredibly important in the beginning and then turns out to have this incredible sort of like power at the end with her narrative that kills that one politician sort of dreams through blackmail. But even then, like I said, like a lot of in hindsight, what happens throughout the rest of the book revolves almost entirely around the, her actions or inactions, you know, if not for her being where she was, uh, there would be no proof uh, against Ed- Edgemont, I think is the politician's name. If she, Egremont, Egremont, yeah. if she had not, you know, sort of played her part when she was hired by Mick to sort of help boost uh, Houston, she would not be mm-hmm. in a place where she could steal that some of those diamonds to go and make a life for herself. And, right. you know, then eventually it, and it appears she like, arguably contributes to Houston being killed, too, which is a pretty big uh, factor, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, because he dies in poverty. Like he goes back to America, dies in poverty, and he's assassinated. I, I think the implication is right. Yeah. yeah, well, he's assassinated by the Texans. the Texians, as they're called in this, uh, are they have a, a? I didn't quite get. I don't quite get the pol- politics there, but they were they were uh, resentful of him. I guess they felt that he ran off with their money, which is something that revolution. There, it's funny because there are definitely revolutionaries throughout history who have sort of gone, well, we've got to decamp uh, with as much money as possible to come back and start the revolution again. But there's a very fine line between doing that and just taking off with all the money, right? Like <laughs> the implication, yeah, it was hard. It's a little hard to figure out. The way I saw it is that like he essentially abandons the Texas independence movement and claims that he is working to support it by trying mm-hmm. to get English support. But in reality, he's just sort of like, he, yeah, he took the money and ran. And, yeah. and like Texas or the Texians are now left sort of fighting a losing battle on multiple fronts, both from the Spanish in California and then uh, the rest of the, un- the quote unquote United States or the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, although he Sam then, Houston died at the Alamo, right in in our world. Oh, I used to know this. I th- I believe so. I believe yes. so. Yeah. So that would make like that's the irony here. It's like the guy who took a stand young. and died versus you know the guy who who gave an elder statement and took. So that's that kind of that that's sort of the the synecdoche of the entire the book, right? Like it's it's instead of being a young brash revolutionary who died young and and had these grand plans they he lived long enough to become an elder statesman and <laughs> statesman and kind of sell out all the dreams that he had well know? i mean that happens that you know does benjamin disraeli is a newspaper journalist and sort of tawdry biographer who like you know gets hired to help mallory write his autobiography mm-hmm. you know? and uh, byron himself of course byron, and, yeah and, byron himself um, yeah. Uh, yeah apparently lawrence oliphant is one of the um uh, protagonists he's uh, a real character the, i know uh, yeah, he's a real person, and, and he was actually a journalist who also did um, covert spying and stuff. He was also um, a um, weird spiritualist and had a lot of um, strange like stuff about visions and stuff, which is sort of reflected in this when he sees a vision of an all-seeing eye, and, which represents this surveillance state, which is forming in the book. Um, right, yeah. He was yeah, also that's a-, um, a hardcore Christian Zionist, and there's some... There's some weird stuff there, but anyway, that's not really covered in the book. Yeah. No, that's kind of interesting yet, actually that the spiritualist movement is almost entirely missing here. Hmm. Which no, I think that's significant because this is you know this is a very materialist society. Like it's getting you know like I'm not you wouldn't say they necessarily crushed them, but they would be marginalized in this society because it's not you know rational, it's not scientific. It's not <laughs> kind hip. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. And 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 it, it is you mentioned the surveillance culture and that is definitely like they gesture at that in very very nicely in kind of a creepy ominous way of how like how the difference engine is being taken over by uh, the police in order to track people and keep files on people and even try to sort of um, create a, a, a like a simulation of like what people might be doing and what they might be thinking, like track movements and figure out where trouble spots might be is the implication. And also a, um, uh, a database based on physiognomy. So, you know, phrenology using, yeah, eugenics and phrenology using advanced uh, scientific technology. It's, it's a scary thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like saying, ugh, this is good. And it's, it's, it's very much about how all these grand, ideas and all these like well-meaning ideas because as i say like they clearly are you know improving in in on in the world in some ways not just in case of like better technology but you know the fact that they they they're sort of sweeping away the feudal order uh but it's still just it it goes completely uh it goes completely to pot and it, it by whatever you think of our current world uh the world that that we glimpse at the end in 1991 seems you know, a much more horrific, it seems apocalyptic, essentially. It's the machines have taken over um, from our point of view. I mean, maybe, again, uh, so going back to uh, Neuromancer, like the, at, at that point, the flourishing of artificial intelligence, which is the ending of that novel, was seen as sort of hopeful. And, and maybe that's the next level for society will, you know, maybe, maybe the computers will take over, but it'll be, it'll herald good things for the universe because now the artificial intelligences will start to talk to each other across the stars. Uh, in this, it feels like, you know, kind of a, you know, maybe that'll still happen, but the human race had to completely, you know, destroy itself for that to happen in this world. It's, it's a very, uh, Terminator esque vision of the future from what I can see. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little bleak in that, in that regard, it's hard to find hope in the glimpse that we see at the end of this. Maybe, maybe that's there. It's hard to say. Uh, again, maybe it's only London that's really bad, and the, maybe maybe life goes on elsewhere. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's 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 a bit of a bleak ending, and it's 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 definitely that idea of you know the 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 grand the grand ideals don't uh, don't pay off essentially. I don't know if it's necessarily meant to be bleak or even positive. It just kind of is, right? And I, I feel mm-hmm. like this is a part of like a larger discussion around expectations regarding literature um, that goes on a lot these days. But to, to me, like the ending, it just sort of is right. Like it's the inevitability of time moving forward. So, um, you know, like the things just change. Right. And, and it's ironic, too, that like for all the ch- massive changes in this book about the society that it's set in versus what was going on at the time, a lot of stuff that that uh, Sterling and Gibson are touching on in terms of the ways people thought about progress and the ways in which the world was changing are, are pretty st- spot on. And if we think about it, like the, the you know, early 19th to, into the beginning of the 20th century saw massive improvements in the quality of life. Right. Like they they and that they still touch on in this book about like the elimination of cholera, about um, essentially the 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 fact that there is, in fact, true sort of uh, there is, you know, true socialists out there still. They talk about these sort of like uh, what are they? They're like the, the sapphic pantom, the red sapphic pantomime <laughs> brigade. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, lesbian communists who are also. Yeah theater nerds circus yes circus performers yeah circus performers slash theater nerds who are my least favorite people plus steampunk (laughs) oh my god no (laughs) only their socialism (laughs) saves them in my eyes but you know it i i think it's just sort of like it's the the book's whole point is not necessarily to do that sort of like hyper possible you know that sort of near future productivity of neuromancer uh it's more to essentially sort of like Time is inevitable in moving forward, and, and progress makes odd changes. And at the time, I feel like in Victorian England, there was this belief that they could control changes to always have a positive and ever-growing forward progress, when in reality, the hypocrisy at the time sort of made that impossible. And of course, that hypocrisy is still reflected in here through police oppression, through backhanded politics, through sexism, through beliefs and stuff like eugenics. Right. Like this is not a progressive 
world. It is simply a different one, but it still progresses in the way things just progress. Oh, uh, yeah, the uh, uh, slave of the, uh, as we've talked about, the Marquis, the the public, the commune, communally owned slave, actually has a line that uh, speaks to that, um, where uh, he says, there's nothing to history, no progress, no justice. There's nothing but random horror. Um, yeah, exactly. And obviously, that's one character's perspective, but yeah, that's... Um, mm-hmm. He sees the big picture. For all the posturing and theory of all these characters, like, you know, again, I, I hate to come back to the fact that, like, the most sane characters are the cops, right? But Oliphant eventually realizing that the things that he has so- sort of set into control into motion with, you know, by talking to Mallory about, well, we can use the engine to try and find these people, ultimately becomes a thing he realizes is truly horrific. And, Fra- mm-hmm. you know, Frazier, the, the sort of, like, the... The secret police agent essentially being like, yeah, there's lots of progress going on, but it doesn't solve all the problems. And he just, you know, he's probably our best representation of people kind of just sort of trying to move along and through that flow. Right. Because everybody yeah, else either going. benefits from it or is blind to the to the downside until it's too late. Yeah. We do see a couple times both uh, Jupiter, the, 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 the slave. It, it's question. I feel like it's questionable whether he's really a slave. There's something we- it's almost a sense of like him being there going. I'm, yeah, okay, I'm your, quote, slave, uh, whatever. As soon as the Marquess is incapacitated, he's like, I'm, I'm going off. But he says he's <laughs> heading back to the New York Commune. And um, and uh, Oliphant, apparently, is uh, going back to, oh, sorry, it was the Susquehanna um, Commune or phylac- something, yeah. phylactery or something. But, yeah, the, so there is a sort of sense that the characters who, like, with optimism, they kind of take off for America and maybe there, maybe there's some, some hope there maybe that's where things might be able to be to to work properly <laughs> somebody i not even in the book but somebody mentioned airships in association with this book and i'm like i think they're casually mentioned but i don't remember them I don't actually so. playing a role yeah I, I don't think they're think mentioned they're... as dreadnoughts oh, okay the dreadnoughts okay. are airships yeah and that, given how that's usually a huge thing in steampunk, it's yeah. kind of funny that, that that's like not a factor at all uh, in the story, um, which is almost entirely set in London anyway. Um, but like it's it doesn't like they don't the army doesn't call in dreadnoughts to bomb the city, you know, or anything. Or if they do, it happens off sc- off screen. No, off they stage. just use regular artillery. But yeah, like that's that's the thing, right? Like steampunk took all the side trappings and the the style and the fashion, and then they just sort of were like. Oh, what's this bit about like pollution and eugenics and uh, you know political intrigue and just how awful the Victorians were despite all their progress? Oh, we're just gonna forget that. Like that meme, you know the oh, you know Gundam is uh, Gundam <laughs> is the war the yep. war the war metaphor, and people just go oh, cool robots and skip over that part. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Steampunk takes that to another. We talked about that with cyberpunk, but steampunk takes that to a new level. Like a, such a whole other level. <laughs> if the, if I never go to a con again, so that you like, it'll be fine because I won't see somebody do steampunk Harley Quinn or like <laughs> steampunk like Luke Skywalker, and then I just want to <laughs> die. Steampunk pickle Rick. Oh God. <laughs> Aha! The clacking has stopped and spit out the card, bearing the answer to all our questions. So it's time to retire to the drawing room and ponder these questions scientifically, like gentlemen, with brandy and cigars. We've been savants of the Royal Geographical Society, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice, and we were joined by special guest lecturer and merit lord, Sir Costa Kutsudis. Once again, we thank our producer, Sandhog extraordinaire, Alex Ross, and the Grand Napoleon himself, Jack Furick, who composed our theme song. A reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2Ss, or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok A for Philip. Uh, also, again, I want to mention the fact that uh, I've become the comics editor at HeroesLive.tv, uh, which where we're building a community. It's a subscriber-based platform for streaming content, but also comics. 
Uh, so check out there. I have Philip's comic, The Apex Society, and some of my own work is up there, but uh, so is a lot of other stuff. Uh, please check it out. Uh, the bulk of my work is sort of all over the place, but if you go to my website, Costa K, that's C-O-S-T-A-K, at word, wordpress.com, you can find pretty much everything there, including my uh, latest book, the sort of proto-cyberpunk novella, The Go-Between, and you, uh, I'm now actually available to get, find, you can find that book now on um, uh, Gumroad and Ichio as well. It's just like a straight PDF. Uh, I also have a Patreon, which I don't really talk about as much. It's patreon.com slash Writes. You can get monthly short fiction, serialized fiction, and nonfiction from me. I am wrapping up a month-long series, month-long sort of serialized fantasy fiction there. And I'm hoping to soon launch a series of essays about Glenn Cook's fantasy books, The Black Company. Yeah, last year I did a year-long series on the works of Tolkien, and all of that is available there. Um, so we've scientifically formulated the ideal time to return, which will be in two weeks. So until then, uh, heat coal on the boiler and keep the gears spinning. <laughs>